Ecclesiastes chapter number 3, we left off uh, in our last message, looking back at the uh, final part of, uh, of the message last time, and we talked about the fact that he made everything, for everything there's a season, and a time for every purpose under heaven. And uh, tonight we're going to talk about God's wonderful plan. I, I said this morning I'm amazed the way God puts things together without, you know, without us actually making any effort of planning out, you know, this message, go with that message. And for the last three or four weeks, it seems like every message, whether it's from Ecclesiastes or, uh, or whether it's from Jeremiah or wherever it might be, uh, some way or another, they all seem to be tied together, and and that's certainly true of what I'm about to say tonight. Whether we realize it or not, God does have a wonderful plan, uh, a plan for each one of us. And boy, I wish so much I could get everybody to really believe that, because it would make it would make a world of difference in their life. And this is exactly what Solomon is wanting us to learn. In the first 11 verses of this chapter, he tells us that there is a time for everything. Uh, he's talking about things that are pleasant. He's talking about things that are painful, things that are delightful, and things that are dangerous. And whenever we learn to accept what God allows with the right attitude, we find the satisfaction that we've been looking for. Just by simply accepting the fact that, as I said this morning, that when we trust God, we know that it's going to work out for the best, realizing that He has an eternal plan that ultimately, ultimately results in the highest good. Knowing that encourages us to maintain a spirit of hope and also to have a joyful spirit in life, even in the most trying times, because we know that our suffering is not in vain, it's not nonsensical, but it's something that God is using, working out a plan that might be 70 years down the road, as it was with those in Babylon. You know, it might be next week, it might be somewhere in eternity when God puts all of the pieces together and we finally realize, wow, Wow, I, I, I didn't see that coming. But now I see and now I understand. Well, in this section tonight, down through verse 22, there seems to me to be two, two main lines of thought here. In verses 12 through 15, Solomon is uh, announcing God's objective. But then beginning in verse number 16 down through verse 22, he anticipates man's objections. So we're talking about God's objectives and man's objections. So let's begin in verse number 12, verse 12 and verse 13, where he speaks here of God's concern. He says, I know that there is no good in them but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all of his labor. It is the gift of God. If you think the troubles that you face are an evidence that God is unconcerned, you are sorely mistaken. Remember in verse number 11, 
he assured us that God has a plan where everything is appropriate in its season. That's basically the same idea that we see in Romans 8, 28, right? All things work together for good. You know, so it's the good and the bad and the ugly. And, 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 and all of those things work together for the good. He, he doesn't say it works together for your good, although that ultimately is true, but it works together for good. It, it might be the good of somebody else, and God is using you in their life. He doesn't say it works together for good next week. It might be a month. It might be a year down the road. But the problem is we tend to focus on the process instead of the product. In other words, we're looking at, we're looking at the ugly cocoon and God's looking at the butterfly. That's what he sees, the butterfly. We're stuck looking at this cocoon and we wonder how in the world can anything good come out of this. It's absolutely something that is ugly, something that is undesirable in my life, something I want to avoid. So we need to realize that whatever we're going through is a part of the process that's needful to produce what God desires. And our text assures us of God's concern. Now, although there is no good in man's labor and in man's uh, work in this world, notice he tells us here to, to rejoice and to do good. In and of themselves, there are things that are, that are no good, but he says rejoice and do good. In other words, that's the response that God expects from us. The problem is we often do just the opposite. We get bitter, we complain, or sometimes we do something that is absolutely wrong and contrary to his will. And so consequently, we lose the benefit of the blessing that God intended. What God was going to do, we, like Israel did, we limit the Holy One of Israel because we refuse to cooperate with his plan because we get bitter toward those things that we don't understand. So rather than rejoice in doing good, as he tells us right here, we do just the opposite. We get bitter, and consequently, we waste our sorrows as a result of that. Instead, we ought to accept our experiences in life. We need to adjust ourselves to whatever the situation is, and make good use of them. And I say that because doing the will of God, to accept those things, to go ahead, rejoice, and do good, accomplishes two things. Actually, more than that, but two things that I'll mention. First of all, it benefits other people. You know, in speaking about our labor and our experiences and what have you in this world, you know, I love what an old preacher many years ago said. He said, all of the good there is in them is the good is to do good with them. All of the good there is in them is to do good with them. Let that sink in. In and of themselves, they're not good. In and of themselves, we would never choose those things. We'd never vote for those things. They're painful. They hurt. They're troublesome to us. The only good in them 
is to do good with them. That's exactly what Solomon is saying here, you know. There's no good in all of this stuff, all of our labor, all of the stuff that we basically do of itself, but he says rejoice and do good. Now, keep in mind that as somebody said over and over again, we're the only Bible that some people will ever read. So folks are watching us. We're to be the light of this world. Their eyes are focused upon us. And, and more than at any time in our life, we have the opportunity to show them what God can do when it seems like our world is falling apart around us. And as I've often said, many times God uses our misery as a ministry to others. That's what Paul was getting at when he said in 2 Corinthians chapter number 1 as he talked about the comfort therewith that we receive. In other words, in our trials and God comforts us. Why does he do that? That we may be able to comfort others that are going through the same thing. And by the way, isn't that why we're here? Isn't that our purpose for being on earth that we can minister to other people you see and so we're able to serve others by our willingness to joyfully accept whatever a God allows to come into our life they they are helped by the good that we do but but not only does it benefit them but it also blesses us think about what makes a person happy what makes a person happy? I, I mean truly happy. Howard Hughes never got it figured out, did he? Elvis Presley, Janis Joplin, all of these people that were famous and rich and what have you, they never could figure out what it is that really makes people happy. And if you've been listening, you know that Solomon has already told us in no uncertain terms that there is absolutely nothing on this earth that can provide true happiness. It's only in obeying God and serving others that we find our greatest pleasure. That's where it is. Giving ourselves in faithful service, being a blessing to others. And as we become useful, we become cheerful. O over the years and looking back and thinking about all of the different all of the different Christians that I've known and, I, and, and especially those Christians that have been so faithful, those that have been so dependable, uh, they're always the happiest folks Amen. because they are investing their life in something that they know that's worthwhile. So Amen. when we realize that everything that happens to us is actually helping us, in the fulfillment of God's plan for our life, all of a sudden we look at everything in a different light. We begin to see this, this thing that we thought was a curse upon us is actually a gift from God. And so these troubles and trials that we go through then are not evidences of God being unconcerned but rather evidences of the fact that God is deeply concerned about what we do with our life. So, then notice verse 14 and 15 now. He speaks about God's control. We see God's concern, but notice now he's talking about God's control. He says, verse 14, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. 
And God doeth it that men should fear before him. Now in the first part of this verse, he's reminding us that God is sovereign. And we need to, we need to get that in our mind and in our heart. God is a sovereign God. He has the right and he has the power to do as he pleases. And his purpose and his plans cannot be changed they cannot be defeated by anyone, regardless of how hard that we try. Man's problem is that he wants to play God. He, 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 he wants to be the one that's sitting in the, the ruler's seat. He wants to be the one that's making all of the decisions, and he resents God's plans, and consequently, he rebels against God's authority. He wants to be in charge of his own life. That, that exactly describes what's going on in the world today. Rather than listening to what the Word of God has to say, it's kind of like they did in the book of Judges. Every man did that which was right in his own sight. We'll make our own rules. And they just don't work, do they? They never have and they never will. We want to change things to suit our desires and God refuses to change. Notice he says, Whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And the goal, notice the goal of all of this, that men, that men should fear before him. That's the place to where God is working to bring us into a reverent fear of him, that men should fear before him. I've never agreed with everything that Matthew Henry wrote. He was certainly wrong when it came to the matter of prophecy. But Matthew Henry said some things that are noteworthy and was a brilliant scholar in many ways. And he said concerning this, he said, To convince them that there is a God above them that has a sovereign dominion over them, at whose disposal they are in all of their ways and in whose hands their times and, and all events concerning them and, and that therefore they ought to have their eyes ever toward him to worship him and adore him to acknowledge him in all of their ways to be careful in everything to please him and afraid of offending him in anything. That's exactly what that God is working toward, that we have that attitude of fear toward him. Now, some folks come along and say, well, I didn't think we were supposed to fear God. And, and naturally, they know of all of the verses in the Bible that tells us to fear God. And they say, well, that is, that, that's talking about just having a reverence for God. Let me tell you, you better dread the thought of displeasing God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. God, listen, God is at work bringing us to a place that will cause us to have a proper reverence for Him. And He's not going to change what He's doing. Sometimes we act like spoiled little brats. And whenever, you know, whenever it comes to... Whenever it comes to raising children nowadays, and you've seen it in the supermarket, there'd be some kid throwing a hissy fit, and the mom, if you don't stop that, I'm going to spank you. You better hush up, you know. And the kid just keeps going on and on and on. And finally, whatever it is that kid wants, mama gives him. Let me tell you, God's not that way. 
God's going to do what is right regardless of our rebellion against Him. His ways are perfect, you see, and everything He does, everything that He allows is necessary to the, to the fulfillment of His purpose, His divine plan for our life. We Presently, we, we can't see that. We can't understand that. We can't see the blessedness of it. As I said, we're looking at the cocoon. God's looking for the butterfly, what to come out of it. And you say, well, what in the world is it that God's really wanting to accomplish that he would put us through all of this? I'm glad you asked. Romans 8, verse 29 tells us precisely what God is working toward. It tells us that He has predestinated us to be conformed to the image, the image of His own dear Son. That's what God is working toward. And all of these troubles and trials that you go through that you can't understand now, please realize that yonder in eternity, God is preparing you for some sort of a ministry, as it were, we're going to be a thousand-year millennial reign right here on the earth. That we're all It says we're going to rule and reign with Him right here. God's getting us ready for, some, for something in the future, and it's, it's crucial that, that we be conformed to the image of Christ. We, we wouldn't do it on our own. We couldn't do it on our own. But through this process that includes suffering and trials through all of that, God is preparing us for what lies ahead. Now look at verse 15. That which hath been is now, and that which is to be hath already been, and God requireth that which is past. Now that's simply speaking about the repetitions in life. And he, he, I think what he's saying is whether you look backward or whether you look ahead, you're basically going to see the same thing. Because the things that we experience are common to people in all generations. That, that's why he tells us there's nothing new under the sun. Sometimes whenever we're feeling sorry for ourselves because of some great trial in our life, we think, oh, I'm the only one that's ever had to go through anything like this. Believe me, it could be a lot worse than it is. Whatever you're going through, it could be worse. And by the way, there are some folks better than you that have had it worse than you. That ought to make us stop and think before we complain against God, you see. So all of these experiences are common. And whether you look back, whether you look at the present, doesn't make any difference. You're not going through anything that somebody hasn't gone through before. And notice the, notice the phrase in that verse where he says, God requireth that which is past. And that simply means that he is going to repeat that which he's already done. Why? So, so why would God do something and then turn around and repeat it? Well, because I suspect it's because we're slow learners. So, so sometimes we just don't get the message, it seems like. And God is intent on teaching us, and he's not going to give up. So whenever we don't learn the lesson, uh, God has to repeat the lesson. I mentioned the other day about getting spankings from my daddy and and with mom, you know, I could breeze through that pretty good. But boy, dad, uh, dad always makes sure he got me to the breaking point. 
There were tears in my eyes. I got the message when Daddy spanked me. And sometimes in life when God is trying to correct us or God is trying to prevent some tragedy in our life and, and consequently he uses troubles and trials to do that or God's trying to mature us in our walk with him and so many times we just, for whatever reason, we don't get the message and so God says, okay, here we go again. That's why I've said so many times, whenever we come to church and we sit and we worship the Lord in song, we hear the word of God, and we leave. And a lot of times we, we get the idea that, well, people leave just like they came. No, they don't. No, you never leave just like you came. You will leave here better or worse than you came. Okay. It all depends on our response to the truth of God's word. And when we refuse to respond God, somewhere along the line, is going to repeat the lesson again. He's not going to let us sin successfully. Now, that being said, we come to the second part, the second point that is made in this section, and that begins in verse 16. And this has to do with anticipating man's objections. It's one thing to say, God has a wonderful plan for your life. It was a tract written many years ago by that title, and that's fine. I, I agree with that. It's, you know, it's one thing to say that. It's another thing to believe that when everything appears to be just the opposite. And that's what prompted these verses that we're about to read. You know, Solomon could say that all day long. But boy, when people are going through troubles and trials, all of a sudden... They have objections to those truths. And so notice what he says. The, the problem is stated in verse 16, and, and then it's studied beginning in verse 17. Verse 16, he states the problem. He says, and moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. Boy, I tell you, there is disappointment written all over that statement. Let me read it again. And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. I think that's something that all of us can identify with. And whether by our own experience or whether by our observation, most of us have been disappointed by the in life we see it in the courtrooms don't we oh listen i i could name several different people and i'll not go into that but you saw it you you saw it on tv sometimes it went on the trials went on for months and months and it's like somebody said you know if you've got enough money and the right connections you can get by with anything including murder and boy, is that ever true, because so many times in the courtroom there is injustice. But not only do you find it there, notice he says the place of judgment, he says wickedness was there. But then he says in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. You see, you don't just find guilty folks in the courthouse, you find them in the church house a lot of times. In other words, the last place on earth that we 
expect this would be in the courtroom where justice is supposedly meted out or in the Lord's house where righteousness is to prevail. One of the most heartbreaking things that I can think of is to think about those that have fallen. Here a while back, a certain theologian passed away. This theologian had been admired by many down through the years. Most of you would know his name if I mentioned it, and I'm not going into detail about the problems and what have you. But thing, I've heard people say probably the most brilliant theologian that they've ever known or heard of. And things came out after the death that made us realize he was a fallen human being. Others, listen, others, and I take no delight in making mention of it, but I must. There are others in positions, in positions in the Lord's work of notoriety in America, famous people, presidents of colleges and pastors of churches that have fallen. What do you suppose that does to the cause of Christ? How awful, what a terrible indictment. Listen, when you and I fail to practice what we preach, when we fail to live up to the standard that we demand from other people and they find out that we've been doing exactly what we condemn them for, they find that out all of a sudden by our actions we've made the glorious gospel repulsive to people like that. They don't want anything to do with it. That's why when you're out here knocking on doors and witnessing to people, the most common phrase you'll hear, the most common excuse is, I don't want to go to church. There's too many hypocrites in the church. And the truth is, they're right about that. One's too many. One is too many. How sad it is. And this is what he's saying here. I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there and the place of righteousness and iniquity was there. Now... He proceeds to study this problem. Verse 17, I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every purpose and every work. Judgment is coming. And again, this reminds us, folks, that here on earth we just see a small snippet of the picture. We, we just see a little bit of it. But there's coming a day whenever the judges and all of the others are going to be judged themselves. Those injustices that trouble us so much are not the end of the story. So many times we think, well, boy, they got by with that. Oh, no, no, they didn't get by with it. God has appointed a day in which he shall judge all men and correct all of the wrongs. Oh, but you say, I'm, preacher, I'm saved. I'll never come into judgment. Are you kidding yourself? Amen. The Bible is very clear. Paul made it clear to the Corinthians Amen. that we must stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. This is for Christians to give an account for the deeds done in the flesh. We are accountable to God, but here's the thing about it. As Christian people whose sins have been forgiven, as Christian people, 
We're going to pay a price here on this earth even before we leave. That's what chastisement is all about. That's why you as a Christian, you cannot possibly sin successfully. And he tells us if we be without chastisement, we're bad uh, uh, bastards, we're illegitimate, we're not truly the children of God. We're not going to get by with it. Nobody ever gets by with it. That ought to encourage us to be patient instead of getting all bent out of shape. We look at, we look at some, some trial or some injustice in some way and we think, you know, we think, boy, something's got to be done about that. And we, I, we just worry ourselves sick about if that person's going to get by with it. Well, just calm down and stop worrying about it because they're not going to get by with it. And then notice, beginning in verse 18, he tells us here as he studies the subject that injustice reveals the sinfulness of man. He said, verse 18, I said in my heart, in mine heart, concerning the estate of the sons of men, that God might manifest them, reveal them, make them known, uh, that they might see that they themselves are beasts. Wow, so much for self-esteem and feeling good about yourself, huh? Boy, that knocks that in the head. We hear so much about self-love and self-esteem, and you just need more self-esteem. The Bible tells us what we're really like, and it's not a, not a pretty picture here. He's telling us that our actions prove that we're more like beasts than we are like God. And, and isn't that sad? To think about man who was created in the image of God living according to the law of the jungle. And that's exactly what's going on in the world today. Verse 19. For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even, even one thing befalleth them. As, as the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. Now keep in mind, he's writing from his perspective, his under-the-sun perspective. And basically, he's saying it doesn't make any difference whether you're a man or you're a beast. You know, everybody's going to die. And it's just simply showing us here that worldly-minded people are... You know, they're seeking their satisfaction in the things of the world. They have no consideration of God. And, and they're not any better off than the beast in the field because they're both going to die. Well, the truth is, listen carefully now, the truth is that they are worse off than the beast. Because as human beings, we have to give an account of ourselves to God. You know, the beast, the animal just dies and goes back to the dust, and that's it. It's all over. I saw something the other day, and, uh, and it's amazing the people that will say things like this. And they talked about uh, someone who died whose, whose pet had uh, deceased earlier, and they said, well, now, he, now, he's with, uh, now he's with, well, the pet's, you know, well, no, he's not. There's a big difference between man and beast. Maybe not in their behavior, but boy, in their destiny, there is a huge difference 
Now he says, all go, verse 20, all go unto one place. All are the dust and all turn to dust again. Well, that being the case, you know, why in the world would we boast of any of our earthly accomplishments, you know? You know, those things that's done for self-gratification instead of God's glory. Verse 21, who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? Now, this is a tricky verse, and I say it's tricky because the critics have tried to use this as evidence that the Bible contradicts itself. They've said that over and over and over and tell us that that's why we can't believe the Bible, that it's not reliable. And they say that there is no scriptural or no eternal distinction between man and the beast. And, and, and although that's nonsense, it, it does deserve a word of explanation because there's so many people that are confused about that very issue there. Solomon was simply saying here that man is not able to discern the principle of life within man or within beast. And, and he's expressing his belief that notice that the spirit of man goeth upward. In other words, it returns to God and the life of the beast disappears in the earth. So he even realized that there is a distinction between the two. But even, let's say, Solomon meant something else. Let's say that Solomon was actually saying, because he's viewing life from under the sun, he is confused, that he's actually saying something that does contradict the Bible. Suppose that was true. That doesn't prove anything, because when you go through the Bible, you will find that God oftentimes records what people have said even though it is untrue. God always tells the truth, and there are those that have made these statements, and God is giving you some historical information. Oh, yeah, they said this. That doesn't make it true. God's just telling you the truth about the lies that they were telling because the Bible accurately records whatever, whatever it is related to whatever subject it is. Now, if we're going to have the ability to enjoy life in all of its various seasons, remember, go back and look at all of those seasons. There's, there's a time for this and a time for that, and some of them are not pleasant at all. But if we're going to be able to really enjoy life, if we're going to find real satisfaction, it has to come through a right relationship with God. Verse 22 Wherefore, I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? Now, the point is, the point is that God expects us to rejoice regardless of the circumstances. Now, that's a tall order for people short on ability. That includes about all of us, doesn't it? The Bible commands us to rejoice. And that's what Paul said to the church at Philippi. Rejoice. And again, always I say rejoice. That's not, that's not a request from God. That's a demand from God. He expects us to rejoice. He wants us to learn 
through our experiences to reverence him as we talked about and to give, give him thanks for the work that he's doing in our life to give him the respect that he deserves and to handle those difficulties with the right attitude and to rejoice about it all of the while. Nobody ever said it better than Paul did in several, actually several different places in several different ways. He says, I take pleasure in mine infirmities. Wow. And go back and look at the things that he mentions there in 2 Corinthians chapter number 4. And boy, he talks about the sufferings that he went through. And I take pleasure in all of that. I rejoice in all of that. And sometimes we get the idea that Paul was some sort of an angelic being or semi-deity or something that he could do something that we can't do. And let me tell you, whatever Paul did, you and I as Christians, whatever he did, we can do because we serve the same God that he did. So how do we rejoice when our world is falling apart? As I said this morning, when we feel that we're trapped, we're in some difficulty that we'll never be able to get out of. What do we do? Well, we rejoice. That's, that's the point. To do that, we have to take the long view. Yes. Going back to where I started now, we have to look at the big picture, take the long view, because we have to look beyond this veil of tears to the day when God's going to make everything right. None of us can see exactly or precisely what's going to happen tomorrow. We just don't know. We can't even explain why things happen in our life. Consequently, we are required to live by faith. In other words, we, we must, in order to be satisfied, in order to rejoice, we have to get to that place that we believe what the Word of God declares, and that is that we trust God's plan because we know that it's going to accomplish the good that He has intended. As we've already seen here, we have problems that are not, not unique to us. These experiences are common to man, and we have to learn to expect them we have to learn to accept them regardless of how painful they are and we we can't change we can't change the circumstances but we can always change our response to those circumstances i have no idea what you're going through and i say that because when i look out on the congregation i, I know what some of you folks are going through to some extent I know there are some folks that have physical problems. There are other people who have economic woes. There are people that have vocational difficulties. They've lost their job. They don't know what they're going to do. They're worried sick about that. And so I know some of them, but believe me, for every problem you know about, there's, uh, there's a thousand others that you have no idea. And sometimes the person that you see every Sunday that person with a smile on their face that is so cordial, that is so faithful to the work of God, you think, boy, they must not have a problem in the world. They might have a problem that is far bigger, far greater than anything you ever imagined, you right. see. So how do they get through it? They get through it because they trust God's plan. 
They don't just wallow in self-pity. They know God is at work in their life. Charles Swindoll said, find ways, get this and I'm through, find ways to discover advantages to your disadvantages. Find ways to discover advantages to your disadvantages. That's exactly what I mean when you've heard me say so many times that sometimes a person's greatest handicap is not having a handicap. Sometimes we have it so good that we don't think we need God. And we don't turn to God until all of a sudden we're flat on our back and we, and we can't help ourselves and nobody else can help us. And we turn to God. And I, I think this is what Solomon is trying to tell us here. That we need to discover the advantages to our disadvantages. That these are pluses. They're not minuses in our life. Whatever you're going through, it doesn't mean that the worst thing imaginable has happened to you. Yes, it hurts. Yes, it is, it is sometimes a fearful thing to have to go through. But believe me, no, believe the Bible, what God says. It's going to work together for some good. And whenever we accept God's plan, accept what he allows, and we trust his God, God's plan for our life, when that happens, there's no telling what great things might come of it. God is a God of surprises. You know, sometimes whenever it seems like, boy, this is the end, it's, it's all over. And, and all of a sudden, it's like God opens up the floodgates. He opens up the windows of heaven and pours out a blessing that, that we can't receive. Boy, I can look back over the years and think about times in the history of this church. There have been some times that, boy, I thought to myself, man, what are we going to do? Attendance is down. We can't. Uh, offerings are down. And what, what, are we, what in the world are we going to do? I, I couldn't even cash my check on Monday until after a deposit was made. It was, I mean, that's how bad it was. We just didn't have the money in the bank, and it's frightening. And now I think about what God has done. I think about other times in my life and in my ministry where I look back and I think about, wow, I thought that was the end of it. I thought that was. I thought it was over. I thought my ministry was over. I, I I'll never forget going to a dear friend, preacher friend of mine about a situation, and I told him. In fact, he was talking to Brother Charles Thomas before he died, and I told Brother Thomas, I "said Brother Thomas, I think the best thing for me to do is just resign, just quit the ministry." And he said, "Don't you dare do that." Don't you dare do that. That's the worst thing that you could do. But I, I thank God, and, and believe me, believe me, the best thing that I could have done in that situation is to just keep going. And it wasn't a matter of maybe uh, not over a few months that I got a phone call from this church Wanting to know if uh, they were looking for a pastor and wanting to know if I'd be interested. And I said, no. 
I said, no, I, and I, there's two reasons. I never mentioned that reason to them. The other one is I know this is where God put me, and I had a group of people there wanting me to start another church in, a, in, in, in that general area. And they were asking me every week, why don't we start a church over there? We really need a church over there. We'll, we'll go with you over there. And that was on my mind. So Brother Gilbert would call, and I said, no. No, I'm not. And I didn't feel like God leading me. Well, he said, will you pray about it? Well, you know, what do you, what do you say? No, I'm not going to pray about it. Will you pray about it? And he said, I'll, I'll pray about it, and I'll call, I'll call you back tonight. It was on an early Sunday morning that he called me. And I said, well, okay, yeah, I'll pray about it. And uh, sure enough, he called back that night and said, would you, come, would you come down and preach in view of a call? And I said, yeah, I don't understand why, but, but if, if, you, if the church feels led to, to extend that invitation to me, I, I, I'll at least come and preach. Well, that was, what, going on 34 years ago, and I'm still... Here, I never thought I'd live in Texas, but boy, I don't want to be anywhere else now. And when I say Texas, I mean I don't want to be anywhere other than Lakeway Baptist Church because through all of that, Bev was, and I was talking about some stuff this afternoon and difficulties that we've <laughs> been through in our life and our marriage and what have you. And, and to think about that God brought us to this place, I... Uh, Boy, like the song says, God is good. God is good all the time. I'm telling you, here's what I'm trying to say, and I'm trying to quit. <laughs> I'm failing, but I'm trying, believe me. You can trust God. Not only should you, but you can. You need to. You can trust God. He won't fail you. Trust his plan. It's going to be all right. It'll be all right when it's all over. Amen. Let's stand together. Father, again, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the way that you work in our lives. And, and Lord, uh, in this confusing, troubled, corrupt world that we live in, the times that we don't know where we're going to turn, we don't know what we're going to do, the one certainty that we always have is that we can depend on you, that you've never failed anyone and you'll never fail us. And Lord, no doubt there are those here tonight that are going, going through deep waters and terrible storms and tough times, difficult days. God, help them tonight. Help them. I'm not even asking you to change their circumstances. I'm just asking you to help them to trust you, to depend upon you to take that thing that is so bad and use it for some glorious good. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Now while we stand and as we sing tonight, if God's speaking to your heart, would you come? You don't have to say a word to me. You just might want to come and pray. Come on.